This podcast does not provide medical advice. Please listen to the complete disclosure at the end of the recording. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Everyone Dies, the podcast. I'm Marianne Matzo. And I'm Charlie Navarrete. So, I don't know if you're drinking martinis in honor of Charlie being back or eating cheesecake in his honor, but whatever you're doing, please enjoy it. And thanks for spending the next hour with Charlie and me. In the first half, Charlie's going to report about the brood X cicadas, their sex life, and foods that we can make with them. On uh, the second, I know, in the second half, we have a guest, Deborah Wright, um, talking about how new drugs are developed. And in our third half, I'm going to talk about the new Alzheimer's drug that has received FDA approval. So, so Charlie, yes. what's all this fuss about? Oh, Charlie, guess what? What? The the babe the babies in those eggs yeah. that I held in my bosom right. have have hatched. Really? And they all and they hang out in my front yard and they go, Ma, Ma And I say, Oh, there's my little babies. Did did the uh, mother name one of them after you? I think so. I think maybe a couple. Excellent. Excellent. I, I tried to get her to name one Charlie, but she said, please. Yeah, well, yeah. Most, most, <laughs> most people do. So, uh, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, but the babies, uh-huh. the babies are no longer eggs. All right. Good. So moving from above ground to underground, after living for 17 years underground as nymphs. And, and you know, when I first saw a nymph, it just took me to an entirely Different place. But after living 17 years. I know. I know. So what is, what, is, what is that about? Jeez. Probably trying to brand them in such a way that you won't be grossed out by them. Well, it worked for, for a couple of seconds. So just, <laughs> the, the just pouring chocolate on cicadas would probably make it okay for me. So after 17 years underground as nymph, Brudex cicadas emerge for a mere few weeks to mature, mate, lay eggs, and die. You know, sounds like my first college sweetheart. Brood X cicadas, which appears in massively high numbers, estimated at up to 1.4 million per acre in hotspots, as an exciting opportunity Jeez to shoot. Yes, that's per acre in hotspots. I'm not quite sure. Do you have them in New York? New York is a hotspot for like museums, for example. Uh, I don't know. So the next time I go to MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art, I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. I'm, I'm sure there are. There, there has to be. There, okay. there are enough, you know, parks and, you know, huge, empty, you know, natural, not geographic, natural, cheese, uh, nature, cheese. <laughs> like, I was going to say natural nature. There, there. <laughs> yes, it's going to be a long show, folks. This is yeah, we, we. We we got ourselves some nature up there in New York City. Oh, speaking of which, da, 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 da. Ned Beatty, remember him from Deliverance? Speaking of nature, yeah, died this past week. Really? Yeah. That was such an upsetting film. It really was jeepers. Poor it was poor. really disturbing. It, yeah. Just, just the capacity, like, just the capacity of human really nature. Really disturbing. Speaking of nature, of human nature. Yes, exactly. That was, wow. Yeah. 
Speaking of nature. So, yeah, so there are enough nature, natural places all over um, New York City. So, yes, I'm sure there are hotspots around here. Absolutely. Where was I? Oh, yeah, hotspots. So, yes, there are, to answer your question. Five minutes later. As, now, so this, uh, with, with all of <laughs> by, this. By way, by way of deliverance. <laughs> <laughs> you sure got a pretty mouth there, oh boy. So moving on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't oh, want you to hear anything about squealing like a pig. So oh, um, from, well, you know, stop. you know, cicadas, pigs, you what? know, they're, they're like, uh, yeah, I don't know how to make how to compare those. Like two. Ned Beatty. Oh, poor Ned! Wow, jeez, that was rough. Um, oh yeah. So, anyways, uh, 1.4 million um, um, cicadas per acre in hotspots. So, listen, this is just a great opportunity to show the breadth and depth of insect-based cuisine. The cicadas go through four major life phases: eggs, nymphs, tenoroles. Marianne, um, do you know what a tenorol is? It's um, somewhere between nymphs and adults. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought you were just going to read what you wrote to me, but okay, fine. I'll take that too. <laughs> so so tenorols. I wanted to be, be uh -huh. spontaneous, you know. Well, it worked. So tenorols, um, this is a brief stage that follows molting. And adults. It, it doesn't follow adults, but basically, so the four phases are eggs, nymphs, tenorals, and adults. Each phase offers a different texture and flavor. The eggs of this generation of brood egg cicadas hatched 17 years ago. So harvesting starts in the nymph phase. The taste resembles what a tofu-filled M&M might taste like. And, and you know, to put those two things together, tofu and uh, M&M... I don't care for tofu. M&M's, yeah, hit me. Plain or peanut. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll go both ways. Uh, Why mess mm -hmm. with M&M's and put tofu in them? I, 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 I have no idea. But there's just something not right about that. So what a tofu-filled M&M might taste like with this crisp shell giving way to a spongy, earthy interior. Our recipe this week is for a chocolate caramel peanut popcorn in which the nymph's M&M-like texture blends perfectly with the crunchiness of the popcorn and nuts. Yeah, I think I'd rather Where stick to... Where do you come stick, up with stick, this stick, stuff? I, I, I don't know, but with popcorn, eh, peanuts, but especially popcorn, I'd just rather go back to my favorite cinema and sit down and watch a movie and have popcorn, plain old popcorn. So for, for this delicious recipe... And watch Deliverance. Please go to everyonedies.org for a link for the recipe and additional resources for this program. You can email us all your secrets at email at everyonedies.org. And because it'll be in, on the internet, you know they will remain secret. Remember to follow <laughs> us on Facebook and Instagram. You would be too cool for school if you would also remember to rate and review this podcast. As a nonprofit, we are always thrilled to accept your donations. Please go to our webpage to donate and support our work, www.everyonedies.org. And this is every, the number one, dies.org. Moving on. 
We are fortunate today to have some insights from our guest expert about research studies and how they are conducted. Deborah Wright is an advanced practice registered nurse and a clinical nurse specialist in the Phase One Program and Clinical Trials Office at the Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City. She's going to explain to us the process drugs go through prior to FDA approval. Deb, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me. My pleasure. Glad to be here. Thank you. So what is a Phase One study? Well, a phase one study is the first initial part of a clinical trial that uses a new medication, um, and I'm going to refer to it as a medication that is used for a cancer patient because that's where my background lies, but you can really Mm -hmm. apply the steps to any medication, whether it's a vaccine, um, a new medicine for for asthma, or for um, um, a new medicine for um, congestive heart failure. So once the drug has been developed and it's been tested in laboratories, and often, yes, it's been tested in animals, and that's not something we all like to talk about, but it's something that has to happen, it goes into human research. And and phase one often starts off with what we call first-in-human trials, and I have been a caregiver um, for patients with first-in-human. First-in-human literally means it is the first time that that medication has been administered to a human being. And so often we do not know the types of side effects. Often we don't even have the effective dosing. We start um, at the lowest dose and we treat very a very a small population of patients at a time. We call those cohorts. Cohorts mm-hmm. simply means groups. And oftentimes we start at three at a time, and that necessarily is not going to be three patients at my cancer center, but we're talking nationwide at all participating sites or cancer centers who are um, participating in the trial or who are running the program. Um, Once those um, patients are treated and we observe those side effects, oftentimes the trial is closed temporarily for a short amount of time. We discuss um, next steps, and then we do an escalation or we go up on the dose. Escalation simply means increasing of the dose. That's what phase one is. Phase one trials are not necessarily meant to look at what the drug does to the cancer. It is simply learning what the drug does, how it affects the patient, and hopefully we find out that it does help either decrease or stabilize the the patient's cancer. Um, But it's mostly meant to to just look at the drug itself. Um, That's what a phase one trial is. So in those first in human studies, do you, have you ever seen really serious adverse events where you're like, holy moly, we've got to stop this now? I have seen, I've seen medications like that. Oftentimes when we follow, when you are on a phase one trial, and this is really rings true for all clinical trial patients, but the acuity or the level of complexity for phase one trials is really at the, at the utmost or the highest that you can get in patients. Um, who choose to participate in, on, on these trials, they are seen very often. Their frequency of provider visits um, can be weekly sometimes, and first in humans, it's, it's daily for 
maybe the first 14 days that we that we treat the patient, and they're not continuously treating necessarily on this medication unless it's an oral medication, which we have quite a few of those now. Mm-hmm. But we are there to notice anything that changes from what they what their baseline symptoms, and that that is symptoms of their other chronic illnesses or diseases like diabetes or high blood pressure, and of course their there are symptoms of their cancer, whether it being pain, constipation, trouble with appetite, neuropathy, which is numbing, tingling in hands and feet, and we see that after patients get chemo. But we are there to see what changes happen. And then when there is a severe change and there is a compromise to that patient's status that involves a, especially a hospitalization or a life-threatening um, event, um, that is reported within 24 hours to the FDA mm-hmm. and to the study. And um, oftentimes there are phone calls that happen within hours um, that we are sharing as much information as we can. And, and, you know, all of the patient's identification is protected. We are only speaking of the patient in the form of a clinical trial number that's assigned to patients. And that doesn't dehumanize the situation at all. It just protects the patient's privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what we try to do. Um, and then there's decisions, and sometimes um, trials are halted and they're stopped while we analyze the situation, whether the patient survives the event or um, they don't survive the event. Um, it has to be discussed, and there are oftentimes um, exchanges of blood samples and different things that can um, help us determine what was, what was the cause. Of, of the event? Was it related to something the patient already was experiencing and some other medical condition, or was this directly attributed to the drug? And sometimes the question is never fully answered, and oftentimes trials will end because we really never can know for sure, and it's just not safe to go forward. So sometimes I hear patients, um, you know, will say when they talk about being in a cl- clinical trial that they're just a human guinea pig. Do you think that's true? I hear that often, and I've heard that of all of the years that I've ever been part of research, whether I was part of a phase, the later phases of research where drugs that are compared to regular drugs, patients will say, well, I just, I, I, I just feel like a guinea pig. And what my take-home message with them is they are doing us a huge honor by agreeing to consent to a a clinical trial, and we are going to try to make their experience as as easy as possible by arranging, you know, I try to make sure that we involve multidisciplinary care, that we have extra nursing available to arrange all of their schedules, and that there is, you know, I, I don't want them to feel like they're on a conveyor belt that I'm just giving them medications, taking temperatures and vital signs, and then moving them down the conveyor belt. I don't, that is not something that should be ever the approach to clinical trial. It, it, it is, when you walk in a patient's shoes, it is easy to see how a patient would feel that way. Mm-hmm. But these are often patients, then I have to remind these patients that they have either exhausted or their standard of care, which means they have had all of the chemotherapies that are currently FDA approved for their cancer that could offer it benefit, and they are not ready to move on to palliative care or hospice care at home. They're not ready to make that step yet, though it's been extensively explained to them what all that means, because I believe that that's also still a form of continuing cancer care. Um, 
that they are here to talk about a drug that could potentially benefit them. It could potentially help them, and it will help. It could potentially help people and patients in the future, and that's often or family members in the future, especially if a patient might have like a BRCA mutation, breast or ovarian cancer, or as we know, urothelial and L-pancreatic patients we know have these, you know, this BRCA or BRCA gene. They are very, very passionate about, I want to help people in the future. Well, usually that guinea pig comparison fades away in the background as we really talk one-on-one because I believe that patients need to have all of the knowledge of what the clinical trial is and what is going to be expected of them. That way they've made the most informed decision, Mm -hmm. and I put some of that power back in their hands. You don't want them to feel powerless. You don't want them to have that complete loss of control. So is a clinical trial only when there are no other options for somebody? Not necessarily. Um, Oftentimes a patient, that is one scenario. There's multiple scenarios now for clinical trials. Patients come to me for clinical trials now that have just just been diagnosed and that Mm. they will be getting the standard of care regimen, which I call the gold standard or the backbone of what we know is the uh, is the, the best approved regimen. And then we like to introduce a new drug that might potentiate or make the standard of care work better. That's not definitely a, a, a last resort sort of scenario. Mm-hmm. I also have patients that have exhausted a lot, you know, several of their regimens, and maybe they didn't tolerate it very well. Maybe IV chemotherapies was something that was very hard on their system and they have a lot of bone marrow and blood count issues and maybe I have an immunotherapy or maybe I have a targeted oral drug that they are interested in and if the patient and if the standard of care is not the right choice for them, then the patient can have that option to say, I don't want the standard of care, I want to try try the trial next. Then, then they might have standard of care options for themselves down the road. So there is many different ways to enter a clinical trial now rather than just exhausting all standard of care, which used to be pretty much the norm for phase one, but that's really changed over the last, I'd say, five to eight years. Mm-hmm. So can only patients with advanced cancer join a clinical trial? The majority of my patients have some sort of advanced cancer that could not be cured by surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, I do have several trials right now currently for ovarian cancer. These patients are getting, they will be getting surgery and the standard chemotherapy, but we're giving them other, what we call investigator-initiated trials, which these are homegrown trials that are written and are run strictly at my cancer center, at Stevenson Cancer Center. Um, they are advanced because, well, that's not really a great example because most ovarian cancer patients, when they come in, um, because it's such a silent disease that they are often already advanced. But I would, right now, currently in my phase one program and what I have seen, my patients are either advanced um, or they are metastatic, which means the cancer has spread uh, beyond the primary site or they have had a reoccurrence of advanced disease. So. I would say the majority of my, yes, my patients are all advanced cancer. So I have I to go heard, back and think about that sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, you know, it, sometimes it's good to, to talk about it because it kind of focuses us on, on what it is the work that we're doing. You know, even though we do it, you know, 10 hours a day, it's still like, you know, like you said, in the last five years, a lot has changed. You know, when we would talk about phase one trials, you know, in the old days, it was not, um, it was people who were, you know, you know, sort of at the end of their life and really just the, the focus being um, a contribution to science, right? Right, exactly. So, you know, we hear a lot in the news about the, um, the trials for the COVID-19 vaccine. And, you know, I read and I hear about people saying, well, what takes so long? And um, why can't we just, you know, start giving it to people? Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? I do. Um, <laughs> you know, and I've been, I, there are several, and I, I was part of the phase three. I was so um, just starting out in clinical research. Actually, I was in, um, at OU getting my um, registered nurse while I was working on my bachelor's. In fact, you, I had you for a class. Um, <laughs> I had you for nursing research. Um, we were, I was part of the Gardasil. I oh, really? follow patients in the part of the phase three for Gardasil. Mm-hmm. I mean, Gardasil took, you know, it took 10, 15 years for that, for that vaccine. And it's going to be a game changer for cervix cancer and for head and neck cancers and for anal cancers. I mean, it's going to be a game changer. It takes time to develop a vaccine. Um, why I would like for us to have a vaccine as part of just a person that would like to get back and to travel again and do all of the things that we all love. I do worry that the fast track that some of these vaccine trials are having might, number one, they might not be effective vaccines. Number two, they might have immunological types of um, side effects that could, could hurt people and could mm-hmm. cause, um, you know, some serious, some serious um, effects that could be life-threatening. And um, I do worry that it's being fast-tracked. And, you know, there's a lot of the cancer drugs that we have um, seen, the new immunological therapies that we call PD-1s or PD-L1s. Patients see these all the time, these beautiful ads on television, these drugs called Updevo or Keytruda. These drugs were fast-tracked in some ways. They weren't fast-tracked in a year. They were fast-tracked over a period of several years, but not the decade or 15 years because, you know, the, the, the phase. But they still followed the phases of research. So they, they initialized in phase one, and then they went on in phase two. There are some of our drugs that are not going on in phase three. Phase three is where you compare um, oftentimes a drug um, with the standard of care, sometimes it does involve a kind of a, a, a double-blind placebo-controlled. And, and, you know, that's always a, a question with cancer patients. Um, it always has to have another, another therapy combined with that. You don't ever want to give a patient just a placebo. That's, that's not ethical. Um, I, I have some concerns about it. I, I follow the news on the vaccine as much as I can. Um, I know there's another, there's a couple of companies here in the United States with a lot of, um, it's getting very wrapped up into politics, which I have a hard time 
um, filtering through sometimes my, myself. So um, I do have concerns about safety in the vaccine. I want us to have an effective vaccine, but I do think that this will be a vaccine that's going to be an ever-evolving vaccine because I believe this virus will continue to mutate just like the flu does. Right. And that's, I, I think that that's something important for the listeners to understand is that um, you know, even cancer can mutate, right? Even cancer, exactly. we, we, we have a drug that we say, okay, this is our gold standard. This works great for this type of cancer. And, the, <coughs> excuse me, and then the cancer itself can change. And then the drugs that we're using are not as efficacious in their treatment. And um, it's important to understand that these viruses or even the cancer itself, these are living things. They grow they change, they develop, and um, viruses like the flu or COVID-19 or SARS, they rapidly change also. And so, which is why the flu vaccine, you know, if you think about it, they, it's sort of every fall they, they're doing actually a best guess of what is the, the flu that's going to affect people and putting that into the vaccine. And their best guess is sometimes good and sometimes not, right? Exactly. So, I mean, it, it's a lot of times it's based on data that's two years old. Right. So um, it's based on the mutation and the, and the genetic line of that virus that's 24 months out, you know, in the past. And it's changed. It mutates. Exactly. I, I just think that this virus, and I think that, you know, the virus that hit Seattle, wasn't necessarily the same virus that hit Italy that they believe is the virus that hit New York. It's because of how human beings travel and how we spread disease to one another. And in that, with climate and then with our own bodies, these viruses have that wonderful breeding ground to make those changes because they are out for the virus is out to survive. That's its right. goal. And the cancer is the same way. The cancer exactly. is uses the body as a host and says, I'm going to take this over. Sometimes we have drugs that can stop it in its tracks. Sometimes we have drugs that can slow it down. And um, sometimes we don't have anything. And I often hear from my patients that, um, well, why can't you? <laughs> why can't you cure cancer? Why can't you stop this? virus and the people don't necessarily understand that it's a moving target that you mm -hmm. you know you're shooting at something and then the target changes and whatever you were using to shoot it with just it just doesn't work anymore have you noticed or have you in in your um studies i i used when i was working at the university i sat on the um institutional review board that reviewed all research studies, and I did that for 10 years. And one of the things that um, we would often see in consents for people were, like for women, um, while you're on this drug, you cannot get pregnant. You must use a form of birth control. Or for men, while you're on this drug, you, you know, your partner must be on some form of birth control. Do you see genetic changes in offspring of people who take certain drugs? I, that is a great question. And that is one of the most 
and it can be an overlooked part of the inclusion criteria. You know, there's a set of rules that all patients have to meet. All the inclusions have to meet via yes, and the patient has to agree to all of this or not have any issues, and the exclusion means they cannot meet any of these, not a safe option for this patient. There's always an inclusion criteria for women of childbearing potential. That's a term that we use quite frequently in in research world, women of childbearing potential. And then if they have a partner, it can get very, very interesting. Now, in my in my sense, yes. I mean, we, I believe that it could have some birth defect issues if a patient should get pregnant while on an investigational agent. I have been aware of this situation many years ago, happening maybe one or two times. I don't recall the outcome. I don't believe that there was a... Um, I don't believe that the pregnancy um, went to term, mm-hmm. but um, I do believe that as far as a teratogen, you know, it's it's uh, it, it's going to cause if you these drugs could potentially cause, you know, anomalies in the fetus that would be detrimental and and potentially you know affect the you know and and and. How can you say, I mean, that, that's just a horrendous thought. It, it's, mm-hmm. it's very worrisome. And so that is, you know, that is something that we have to do that, that tick box. And, and I often prescribe, if I know of a patient that is still ovulating and she has a chance of becoming pregnant and she also has stage four um, cancer of some sort, like colon cancer, which believe it or not, I have a lot of women there seems to be more I'm seeing, and it's very disturbing to me, I'm seeing 20 and 30 and 40-year-olds present with, in, with late-stage colon cancer, and we aren't sure why that's happening right now. We have some ideas, but nothing's been proven out. It's very important yeah, that, that used we make to be sure. A, that used to be a disease of, like, middle-aged men, right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm seeing a lot more of it, and, and this is a conversation that we have to have with people. And even if they're not, and they say, well, I'm not sexually active right now, uh, I still have to put you on some sort of birth control, whether it be, you know, sometimes we go back to old school and we still use Depo-Provera or we use, you know, oral contraception. Oftentimes, and, if they, and, and you know, barrier methods are acceptable, but they have to use spermicide and condom as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to, they have to agree. And in every cycle, if there's a woman of childbearing potential, especially seems to be the focus more on the female, of course, in these types of situations, um, they get a pregnancy test every time they come in before they treat. We either do one by urine or by blood. It's odd enough, and I will say this, for my men who have a spouse that we counsel them on contraception, I'm not testing the wife every month, if that makes sense. But we're not right. doing that because she's not the trial, trial participant. But I could see a person listening to this podcast saying, well, what about testing the spouse? Right. And, you know, if they're in a, and if they're in a heterosexual, you know, if this is, you know, um, a couple. And, you know, I've had couples that are, are you know that are same-sex couples i've had lesbian couples and then they're like why do you continuously tell me i have to be on birth control i i'm 
not, I'm not going to be getting pregnant. Why do I have to take this extra medication? It, it can be a tricky thing. I've actually advocated for, for patients and said this patient is not, at, is not at risk of becoming pregnant. Therefore, we're not going to put her on this extra medication. So and does that, is that it. allowed? Because cause I know there's a lot of rules with these studies. It's like we don't care what the details are. I usually ask before I commit, <laughs> I commit the, you know, I usually say uh, this is my situation. And then what we do is we enter in a statement, a provider statement, and the statement has to follow this patient in every clinic note. And then we notify the study, and the study will either say, yes, we understand that there are different situations, and then they'll say, no, we, we want you to follow it. But sometimes we can't get permission. They do mm-hmm. understand that not every patient is going to meet, to meet this black and white rule. You know, there's always, there's, there's, you know, there's different, you know, patients come from, you know, have, you know, are different. Patients are different. Their lifestyles are different. Right. You know, and I've hear, heard, you know, like um, comments made, uh, you know, when you talk about politicizing things, like, well, what, you know, go, go ahead and take it. What's the worst thing that could happen? Um, and so, Deb, what are the worst things that could happen if somebody takes, well, you know, I know that this drug is approved for X, but I have Y, you know, and I read on Facebook that it might help me. So what's the worst thing that could happen? Do you have any thoughts about that? The, wor- the worst thing that can happen if you, have, if you have an advanced cancer and you take something for another disease process, it's probably not going to help your cancer at all. And then your cancer is going to continue to grow and progress until you become you know, until you become so symptomatic that it affects your quality of life and your and your ability to take care of yourself, or it could interact with other medications that you're on and potentiate another issue that you might have, whether you have, you know, high blood pressure or heart disease or you have um, diabetes, or it can cause side effects that could potentially cause you to end up in the hospital very, very sick or end your life. That's what could happen. And I, I see that a lot with um, over-the-counter um, preparations. We had an, a situation here in, in the state of Oklahoma where several of my patients were taking dog dewormer because um, they read oh, on I remember when media. patients were talking about that. What happened? Well, I... Um, I would not allow any of my patients to be on dog dewormer and be on a clinical trial. So they would at least have to verbally agree. Now, I have no way of going to their home and checking their medicine cabinet or doing, doing a um, blood test to see if they weren't taking it. But we explained to them that it would be potentially to their detriment if they would take something that I knew nothing about that had not been studied and I knew nothing about how it reacts within a human body I mean, it's a toxin. It's, it's meant to kill a parasite in the gut of a dog or some other animal, you know, how it would interact with what we were giving them. I didn't want to do anything that could potentially make them so ill that they end up in the hospital with kidney, fail, kidney failure or some other bleeding issue. Mm-hmm. So we have to have patients. We basically have patients, and we go through everything that they put in their mouth to make sure that it might not have an interaction concern and sometimes we don't always know if it will or not sometimes we err on the side of 
some people might consider overcaution because we say we just, you know, there's some supplements and vitamins that some people might want to take every day or some herbs. And sometimes I have to say, you, you really need, we, we can't do that. We can't do that right now. One of the things that they have seemed to overcome a lot of the clinical trials is allowing medical marijuana, which is something that um, was not allowed for a while, but that's becoming uh-huh. much more allowed. That doesn't seem to be an issue now. And we haven't yeah. seen, I haven't seen any side effects with it at all. Some inner, I haven't seen any interactions that would be concerning. Mm-hmm. I know my, my sister was, diagnosed with um, uterine cancer. God, it's almost, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago. I was stunned by how many emails and things that she would get about these alternative cures. And they were not cheap. Um, And she would buy some of them. And and she'd say, I want to talk to you about this, whatever it was. And I'd say, okay, if you want to. And she says, I can just tell by the tone of your voice that you don't think it's going to do any good. And I said, Joan, if you think it's going to do good, and, you know, and she wasn't on any trials, but, you know, she was on taking chemo, then, then you make your own best decision. But she would spend hundreds of dollars on some of these things. And it just seems like there's a lot of people out there who are willing to take advantage of people in sort of a desperate situation. Oh, I I have patients that ship in medications over the years when they were on trials that maybe didn't have such a strict criteria on what they were taking. We call that, it's another one of those research terms, concomitant medications. That just literally means whatever you're taking, vitamin-wise, supplement-wise, medication-wise, at the same time that you're on a trial, um, whatever you're you're taking, you know, as part of your regular, usual care, um, they would have, I've had patients travel overseas. I had a patient travel to Brazil. I've had a patient ship in medications from Denmark and from Europe and from India. And I didn't know what was in these medications. Sometimes they would have an ingredients list, and it was oftentimes just different mixes of herbals and different things. But they would spend hundreds, sometimes thousands of dollars um, for these you know, for these supplements or for these other other treatments that they really wanted to try because I, I think that patients want to not ever feel that they didn't leave a stone unturned, that, that I want to try every every option out there for me. And if it, if it if it if a patient needs to be able to do this for themselves, you know, for their peace of mind, you know, I, I can't sit there and say don't do this, but it, it does hurt me to see patients who are already facing financial toxicity because of cancer treatments, doctor visits, paying surgeries, paying for CAT scans, paying for this, paying for that, not being able to work as much because they don't feel well because they're on chemo. Mm-hmm. And then they're, they're laying out all of this Medicaid, all of this money for this stuff that I don't know if it's going to help them. And I don't know if maybe helping their peace of mind is worth it for them, and maybe it's worth it for them. I, I do find that patients like to have that. They feel very empowered to be able to make those decisions for themselves. And if, and if that comforts them in some way, 
and it's not going to hurt them, or if I don't know if it's going to hurt them, if it's allowed, then, you know, patients go on and do that. When patients opt to do those treatments in lieu of any sort of standard of care, I, I, I really spend a lot of time counseling them on what their risk could be because, this, you know, they could be potentially, I mean, I've had patients come to my phase one program who decided to do naturopathic treatment mm-hmm. and it didn't work and they came in and they, it was, it was, you know, they, they never were able to get a good response to chemotherapy. Like we lost time, but you know, that's, that was just my own observation. Yeah. I had, I've had patients like that in supportive care where the standard care was offered to them and um, they either, you know, you know, did homeopathic or put their trust in the higher power to be cured and then, you know, some time goes by and that's not what the outcome they had. And, yeah. um, and it's, 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 it's hard as a clinician, isn't it, to try to try to help them at that point when it really is too late. It is. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really appreciate you talking with us today because I think that our listeners need to hear about what clinical trials are, both for people with cancer who, um, you know, there's constantly work being done to find something that, depending on the type of cancer, that can either stop it or slow it, but also for lots of other drugs. And um, your experience has been phenomenal, and I know the care that you give your patients is um, high quality and very caring, and Stevenson Cancer Center is very lucky to have you there. So thank you for spending time and talking with me today. Do you have any final thoughts that you'd like to share? I just would hope that anyone that is interested in a clinical trial, if you're going through a cancer diagnosis, to um, read all you can online, but go to knowledgeable sites such as clinicaltrials.gov to talk to your clinician um, for, and for people that are listening to the podcast that are just wondering how drugs are developed. Um, there's interesting articles in the, uh, the National Institute of Health explains what clinical trials are and if people out there that are stressed and hoping and wishing and praying for these vaccines um, and hear all the stuff that are going on in social media and in the news, that you, you reach out and, and, and look for good, reliable sources that kind of explain, that can explain the science behind how we, how we develop um, drugs and vaccines and that it has to be done in a specific way and never stop asking questions and question everything mm. and empower yourself to get the information that you need. And I can talk about clinical trials all day long. I'm very passionate about <laughs> clinical trials or I wouldn't be doing it. You either love working in them or you don't. I apparently do because I've been doing it for so long. But um, I do appreciate you having me on, and it's been lovely talking. I don't get to see you anymore, so it's been lovely talking to you. So I want to thank you for spending time with me. So that was really a great explanation. And 
in our third half, what I'm going to talk about is the new Alzheimer's drug that is um, really, Charlie, causing a lot of controversy on a couple of different levels. Yeah, I, I saw uh, about six. Yeah, if, have you been watching this one? Um, I've, I've I've read just very quickly one article, just just you know, part of the controversy that you know, just with the was it that uh, the the some of the trials were not. Some of the medication. I, I don't remember what, but it, I, I just really did not uh, read it thoroughly. Well, so I'll, I'll tell you all about it. Okay. And, um, and I know that we have a lot of listeners um, in, in, in family caregivers with Alzheimer's and dementing illness. So I thought it would be interesting from that oh, point yeah, of view. Absolutely. Plus yeah. just the whole... The whole thing is really kind of interesting. So there's about 6 million Americans who have Alzheimer's disease, and there is no effective um, treatment or cure. And in our reference section, we gave you the link to our previous podcast explaining Alzheimer's disease. So I'm not going to go into that, except to say that briefly Alzheimer's disease is characterized by deposits of something that's called beta amyloid plaques. And these are like... um, sticky kind of plaques that um, mess up how information is transferred through the brain and stuff gets stuck. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm chuckling because this is a very interesting explanation of it, but information okay. really does get stuck uh-huh. and it doesn't get back out again. And there's these um, neurofibrillary tangles in the brain, which then these two things, the theory is, is they are accompanied by what's called synaptic dysfunction and degeneration of the nerves of the brain. So in our previous podcast on Alzheimer's disease, we talk about what is the synaptic, synaptic dysfunction. And it's just that there's these jump points where information has to jump across different parts called synapses. And with these beta amyloid plaques and neurofibrillary tangles, they can't do it. So, back to the drug. So, the newly FDA-approved drug uh, is called Adolum, or Aducanab, is an antibody-based immunotherapy drug. So, let me just say that again. Um, It's an antibody-based immunotherapy drug. So, in a lot of cancers now, Charlie, we do or we give medications that are immunotherapy drugs, or we'll call them biologics. Okay. A lot of patients don't want to call them chemotherapy. Oh, I'm not taking chemotherapy. I'm getting the antibody-based drugs. Well, it's still not something that's um, necessarily there in your body, so you, know, you can debate what you call it. But you know, these, are, these are immunotherapy drugs. And this new drug, the adolum, is used to break down the amyloid beta plaques and then remove them from the brain. So okay. that's what this drug is supposed to do. Break down those um, amylo- or beta amyloid or amyloid beta plaques and get rid of them. So these antibody-based drugs, the biologic agents, um, uses the normal immune mechanism to stop the beta amyloiding plaques from forming. And they do this by using monoclonal antibodies, or MABs, as antibodies are cloned from a single antibody, binds to the cell, which results in immune response. So if you were talking about uh, 
let's say you got a bee sting, your body would have an immune response to that. If you're allergic to it, you'd have a huge immune response. It might not be able to breathe, and you might start itching and breaking out in a rash all over. It could be a horrible mess. Or you could be somebody who has a very mild reaction. You just get a little red marker on your skin. But until you're bit by that bee, you don't know what your response is going to be. And so the same thing is true with monoclonal antibodies or these MABs, because you really don't know how your body is going to respond to the drug um, until you take it. So when they were producing or working on this drug, after what looked like really promising results in mice, because remember what Deb says, you know, they don't start with humans. They start with mice or, or other animals. Um, Biogen brought the adulamab um, to a phase one trial in 2011. Given, and what they did is they were giving a single increasing dose by IV to participants who had mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. So it wasn't people with late stage Alzheimer's. They had, so this is how a scientific study is done. They say, okay, here's our population, people with mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. Um, how are we gonna give it? We're gonna give it by IV. And how much are we going to give? Well, we don't know. Remember, as you know, Deb says, when you're starting out in these trials, you don't know what the dose is. So you start out with a small dose, mm -hmm. see what happens, and then increase the dose. Okay, so that's what they were doing with this, is that they were um, increasing the dose as they went along. And what they found was a good safety protocol when compared to those who were receiving the placebo. So they had a whole other group who's giving, you know, mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. They were getting a plain, um, you know, IV, you know, saline or something. And so when they compared the two groups, um, both groups were safe and they did okay. So Biogen then conducted what's called a phase 1B randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-dose trial. So what that means, randomized, um, you have two people walk in the door, and by the roll of the dice, one person goes into one group and one person goes into the other group. Doesn't matter who they are or, you know, if they met the criteria of mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease, they were randomized into one of two groups. So that's the randomized. Double blind meaning not the patient nor the researcher knew who was getting the placebo, the salt water, or who was getting the actual drug. And um, it was a multi-dose trial, meaning that they were giving, um, the way, they, the way that they, they do these doses is by milligram per kilogram of body weight. So they were doing one milligram per kilogram body weight, three milligrams per kilogram body weight, six um, milligrams per kilogram body weight, or 10 milligrams, okay? So that was um, calculated based on each person's body weight that day. Um, so, you know, in people who had mild Alzheimer's disease. So, uh, 
pre-specified statistical analysis of placebo and all doses revealed a statistically significant overall dose-dependent slowing of clinical decline in standardized cognitive testing. So, what does that mean? There are tests, standardized tests that you, that you can give. And actually, we did a program, um, we did a podcast on like what testing can you anticipate getting mm-hmm. if you're right. being evaluated for right. Alzheimer's disease. So there's standardized testing. So they said, we're going to give everybody placebo, you know, the, the control group or the clinical trial group. We're going to give them the standardized testing. And what they wanted to see was, was there a decline um, or an increase in cognition based on the drugs and based on the dose? So when they're talking dose-dependent, that's what they're talking about. Did they get the one milligram? Did they get the three? Did they get the six or did the ten? So what they found was a statistically significant, meaning that it didn't happen by chance. Overall dose-dependent slowing of clinical decline in standardized cognitive testing. So they said, this is really promising. This is so exciting. So then they began two phase three studies. Mm -hmm. So phase three studies are where you can then give them to larger populations of people. And these were three multi-center trials in 20 countries in North America, Europe, and Asia for the evaluation of the adulam, the drug, um, at two undisclosed doses. And they had a high dose and they had a low dose in 2,700 people with early Alzheimer's disease. Now, this is where it gets interesting. In these Um, phase three studies, they were stopped after an independent committee concluded that efficacy in slowing down cognitive decline in Alzheimer's disease was unlikely to be found, meaning they didn't see anything to warrant giving people these IV drugs. Because you say... You know, a lot of people will say, well, it's a biologic, it's a natural drug, it's, you know, monoclonal antibody. We have these in our bodies anyway. Well, you do, because what you're doing is activating your own immune system. But when you put these drugs into your body, you can have severe allergic reactions. You can have severe skin problems. Oh, my God, the skin rashes I've seen from from these drugs and they, the itching just drives people nuts. Um, you can have respiratory responses while you're getting the drug where we have to stop the drug right there and then. And yeah. And, and give steroids in order to counteract it. So these are not, Oh, it's like taking an aspirin. No, these, these are not to be trifled with. So this independent committee, separate from the researchers, separate from the drug companies, said, you don't have any data to show that this is worthy of putting this in people's bodies. So they stopped the study. Didn't even finish it. Well, then the FDA comes along and approves the drug this June 2021 
under an accelerated approval pathway that provides early access to treatment expected to benefit patients with serious disease. Following the priority review, it was given by the agency in August of 2020. Adulam is the first Alzheimer's treatment approved by the FDA since 2003. So, although the phase three clinical trials were not fully conclusive on the therapy's benefits regarding cognition and function, they clearly show that adulam can reduce levels of beta amyloid plaques. So if you're saying, well, can you get rid of these beta amyloid plaques? Adulam can reduce them. Okay. And normally, a clinical study would stop here. Mm-hmm. Because when you set up a study, you set it up and you say, here's the outcome I'm looking for. And they set it up that they wanted to see if there was a slowing of clinical de- decline in standardized cognitive testing. They couldn't show that. Okay. So what they did is they said, oh, let's just change the outcome. What do you mean change like, the outcome? If it's Exactly. Exactly. The people at the, at the FDA are like, wait a minute. You don't just change the outcome because you don't like the outcomes you got. Yeah. That's not how science works. Right. Science does not work that way. So um, the adulam showed that they reduced beta amyloid plaques. And you would normally just stop there because there was no decline in standard clinical decline in standardized cognitive testing. But since they could show lower levels of beta amyloid plaques, these data were used to accelerate the approval decision, which allowed for earlier approval based on a surrogate endpoint as a marker, meaning that in this case, the reduction in beta amyloids. This means that instead of saying that the drug has any impact on slowing memory decline, and therefore is an effective drug for Alzheimer's disease, they changed the outcome, the endpoint, to saying it reduced beta amyloids. Well, well, that might even be all fine and good. Oh, I'm sorry, what? You going to say something? Well, no, it's just I'm listening to this and it's... Okay, this this is the con- yeah. This is what I said. I, I I had not read the the thing in detail, but I'm just wow. Okay, <laughs> you can just change something. Okay. okay, yeah. No, you 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 usually can. So this <laughs> so this is where the problem is. Right. The research defined a treatment for Alzheimer's disease has been based on an amyloid hypothesis, mm-hmm. meaning that it assumes that the beta amyloid plaques in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease is at least partly responsible for the disease and that removing the plaques could help relieve the symptoms. But this has never been confirmed. It's a hypothesis. We know they're there. We don't know if removing them would change anything because we don't have any data or research to support that. So that's why it's called an hypothesis. So the drug went before the FDA advisory committee, and they have this, you know, the FDA has many advisory committees of people who are experts in their field. And so it went before the FDA advisory committee on neurological therapies. And this advisory committee voted that the drug was not clinically effective. 
10 against approval and one uncertain. I mean, it wasn't even equivocable. It was like 10 said no and one said, I'm not sure. Um, and it included concerns about brain swelling at the higher doses. Oh. So remember, the, the one finding that they found was that you know, like the higher doses, you had kind of better results, right. except there's problems when you have higher doses. But instead of listening to the advisory council, the FDA voted to approve the drug and it placed no restrictions on which patients with cognitive, cognitive impairment could be given the drug. So it's not saying only in early stage, only in middle stage. They put no restrictions whatsoever on it. So there's no evidence about how effective this drug is for Alzheimer's disease. Now, we'd love to find a treatment for this disease. We'd love to find a way to slow it down. But Adulam is, there's no scientific evidence to right, support no, that this uh, is yeah, it. Yeah. So um is administered by ejection as an intravenous infusion by IV for about one hour every four weeks. And patients might experience side effects that include cerebral edema or swelling of the brain, bleeding from the brain, um, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities, um, angioedema or swelling beneath the skin, or uticaria, which it's a skin reaction that's similar to hives, and it is horrible. I mean, I've seen that a lot in my chemotherapy career. Uh-huh. According to the drug maker, some patients on Adulam clinical trials also experienced adverse effects like falling, diarrhea, and disorientation. Due to the potential for the brain swelling and brain bleeding, those taking the drugs will have to undergo regular MRIs to ensure that they're not having serious side effects. Now, when you get an MRI, you know, you're getting radiation into your body. And, you know, if, if you need it for particular imaging, then that's needed. But when you're getting a lot of them, there's potential problems right. there. So the next issue is that of cost. Because uh, typically Medicare will pay for FDA-approved medicines. Now, there's been a lot of times with certain cancer drugs where it's been FDA approved for one kind of cancer, but people have been doing studies in another kind of cancer, and it's just kind of showing like, ooh, this might work. Well, insurance companies aren't going to pay for off-label use of a drug, meaning a drug's approved for one thing, but we're going to use it here. No, you can use it. You can pay for it yourself, mm-hmm. but Medicare or um, most insurance companies is not going to pay for it. So since this is FDA approved, Medicare is sort of on the hook to pay for it. So this drug would be covered by Medicare Part B. And here's where it's interesting. Doctors have a financial incentive to prescribe it. Oh, really? Why? Yeah. So for prescription drugs, for prescription drugs, the program pays physicians the average price plus 6%, Hmm. a policy that both President Obama and Trump proposed changing, but they didn't change it. So that's another like $5,000 or so that can go into the physician's pocket Pocket, every year 
that the patient's on this drug. So the preliminary announcement price is nearly $60,000 annually per patient. Jeez. And covering the treatment would cost upwards of $100 billion a year, mostly to Medicare, and that would almost double the program's drug spending. Patients could face out-of-pocket costs anywhere from zero for patients who are eligible for both Medicare and Medicaid to $10,000 annually since Medicare Part B can hold patients responsible for up to 20% of costs. So the cost of expensive drugs ultimately trickles down in the form of higher premiums or taxes. Medicare is not allowed to negotiate pharmaceutical prices, and a Medicare project crisis is always sort of just one drug approval away. Depending on what gets approved by the FDA, you know, Medicare is sort of at the mercy of what is approved by the FDA. Um, With a dualum, it could seem that that crisis has arrived, even when evidence so far suggests that there's minimal benefit for patients in return. The only thing that we can say about this drug is it can lower the um, beta amyloid plaques, but there's no evidence, no study that it does anything to cognition. And that's the whole point of taking a drug for Alzheimer's disease is because you want your loved one, and, or if it's yourself, to be able to have good cognition and memory and, um, you know, the ability to interact and, and, and continue to be yourself as long as possible. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So what, que- what questions do you have about so that? So down the road, okay, um, if it is discovered that this uh, new FDA-approved drug has a really bad side effect, can the patient then sue uh, the manufacturer? Well, if it's an undisclosed side effect. So, you know, like, you know how on TV they go on for five minutes right, with all right, the yeah. side effects that yeah. a person could have. Right. Um, so it would be, you'd be hard pressed because the, the list of potential side effects are like any other biologic agent because they all kind of work the same way. And so those, that list will, will be included and the thing that's different here is the brain be- bleeding and the brain swelling. Um, so that would be added on to it. So, I mean, anybody, you know, anybody can sue for anything. Whether or not right. they would get any money is a whole other story. Hmm. Okay. Wow, it's nuts. <laughs> it's really unprecedented to, for the FDA to go yeah, against their own expert advisory council. And there's people... There are people at the FDA who quit, who said, Oh, really? Uh, I don't uh-huh. know what's going on, but, you know, the, uh, how can science continue to be science? If you say, you know, like if you say, well, I, I want to know if, um, you know, when it rains, this this dish of ice cream turns red or blue. And then at, then when it doesn't do either of those and 
you say, oh, well, I also wanted to know if it would melt. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't get to change what you were looking for right. after. Hmm. It's against the rules. Yeah. So, so that's my story. I hope that was that helped make sense of this whole thing. Unfortunately, yeah, it's like an it's like I don't know an episode, you know, of Mash the Movie or like crazy <laughs> craziness of Catch Twenty Two. It's not a Catch Twenty Two, but geez, that's nuts. So, on that positive note. Please stay tuned for future episodes of Everyone Dies. And thank you for listening. This is Charlie Navarrete reminding you that death is not the opposite of life, but a part of it. And I'm Marianne Matzo. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Remember, every day is a gift. This podcast does not provide medical advice. All discussion on this podcast, such as treatments, dosages, outcomes, charts, patient profiles, advice, messages, and any other discussion are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice or treatment. Always seek the advice of your primary care practitioner or other qualified health providers with any questions that you may have regarding your health. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard from this podcast. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. Everyone Dies does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, practitioners, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned in this podcast. Reliance on any information provided in this podcast by persons appearing on this podcast at the invitation of Everyone Dies or by other members is solely at your own risk.